0: Hello and welcome to Actuarial People, with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week, I'll be speaking with the UK Actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an Actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Please welcome to Actuarial Old People, Kevin Hollister. Hi. Hi, how are you doing?
1: Uh, yeah, good, good, yourself?
0: Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time. I'm pleasantly surprised at how many people are just saying yes to to, to spending some time on the podcast and, and sharing their story. So I really appreciate it. Would you mind giving the listeners a quick overview of who you are and what you do today? And then we'll go back to the very beginning and work forward from there.
1: Uh, okay, yeah. So my name is Kevin Hollister, and I'm um, I'm an actuary. And I still am technically an actuary, although I don't really do that much in the way of actuarial work anymore. Um, at the moment, I run my own company focused around retirement planning tools, and it's called uh, Guide with two eyes. And essentially, it's something that I first started developing about 10 years ago. When the Pension Freedoms came about, I could see that if advice wasn't made compulsory, then there'd be lots of people who'd be approaching retirement with... Define contribution pension pots, and they would need to understand how they withdrew those pension pots over time to give them a sustainable income, including everything else they have, and to not run out of money as well.
0: Fantastic. I wondered if we can start where I always do, which is asking you to cast your mind back. Can you tell us when you first discovered that the actuarial profession existed?
1: Uh, I can indeed. I um, I went to a recruitment fair
0: and
1: um, i I was doing economics at university and I was quite good at the maths parts of economics or econometrics and um, I went to a um, a kind of postgraduate fair the job market wasn't brilliant at the time and I was looking to stay on at university for some time and I was looking at doing econometrics and I saw next to it a stand around actuarial science and I just started speaking to the the guy there and it seemed very much k- kind of like all the statistics and um the maths that you did with econometrics. So um yeah, so I spoke more and it seemed really interesting and it just kind of piqued my interest then. And that's when I kind of followed up on it to do actuarial science as a as a postgraduate course after uh, after economics. Um yeah, I look back now and probably think econometrics was quite um was, was quite a new a new kind of field at the time. And um yeah, if I'd have probably gone down the econometrics route I might have been, I don't know trading dollar yen options for millions of pounds for, <laughs> rather than being an actuary.
0: Yeah, yeah. But helping fewer people in the process. Exactly. <laughs> so where did you go from there? So in terms of applying for your first actuarial role, did you did you sort of head straight towards pensions consulting or did you consider other options at that time?
1: So at the time there was only two places that did any kind of actuarial degree or postgraduate course, and that was Harriet Watt in Scotland. And City University, so I ended up going to City University, doing the one year course there, and then I got really lucky when I came out of university in that the um, the pensions review was ongoing, which um, was about people obviously being missold, um, opting out of pensions and transferring pensions in the eighties, and um, they effectively needed people to do the calculations to work out the redress. So. It really wasn't, and there was lots of entities, consultancies and so forth, and providers offering jobs um, on contract basis to to people who, uh, you know, w- were willing to do that. So I would imagine that a vast majority of us who qualified from um, City University at that time ended up doing the pensions review because, um, yeah, it was just right place, right time. And um, it was really quite easy to walk into a job doing that with some, you know, with some actuarial knowledge.
0: When was that? Um, just looking at LinkedIn you were at Hyman's Robertson in 2002 is that what we're talking about or was it before then?
1: No no so I, the very first job I got was a contract role with, with Hyman's Robertson actually with their old offices in Fleet Street in London and um, I did that role for a number of months but it was on a contract basis and then because there was more and more there's more and more demand for people some of the other consultancy started offering um permanent jobs. So it was like you work in the pensions review and then we'll take you on as a uh, a pensions kind of training actuary after that's finished. So um I obviously knew it wasn't going to be a, a long term role just doing the calculations. So I thought about the kind of security of things and um yeah went to take a um, a kind of pensions student role and that was a what used to be called Abbey National Benefit Consultants, which I think then got bought out by Jardine Lord Thompson. Okay. JLT, a long time ago. Um, and then the, the the review went on for quite a bit more time than I'd expected. And towards the end of the review, I could see that there was actually quite a bit of – there were quite a few people who'd gone and just set up on their own and were doing the calculations on their own. So I kind of moved away from the, oh, I kind of want the security to, oh, there's only probably a couple of years left in this. so I might as well try and make the most out of it. Um, As I can, and I just set up on my own, took on my own cases, and you got paid on a, you know, each case that you did, and uh, yeah, it was um, it was quite a frantic couple of years, but um, yeah, it kind of worked out quite well, I suppose, in 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 terms of that period. And then after that, um, the job market was really buoyant, um, and I, me and my wife decided to go travelling for about nine months. And uh, so we went travelling, came back, and the market had really, really crashed. So <laughs> lots of people were obviously looking for full time roles um, who'd been contracting before, and you used to be able to, used to be able to pay off the MFR debt to get rid of the liabilities that you had with a pension scheme, and a few companies had done that, and I think some of the actuarial consultancies were panicking a bit of. If everybody does this, you know, we're probably not going to have much in the way of clients or if a significant number of people did this. So, so the market was, was really quite bad in terms of pension consulting, but Hyman's Robertson, they were obviously a big player in the local government market, which was unaffected. And, um, oh, so I went for an interview and it was up in Glasgow and I've been, been traveling. We spoke about moving away from London and I went up to Glasgow. And it was in July and I got off the plane and it was 26, 27 degrees. It was beautiful sunshine and, um, went for the interview. They offered, offered me the job. And I said, um, okay, I'll, I'll, come back to Glasgow with my wife for a week and, um, we'll spend a week up here and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how we like it and, and so forth. And we went up there like probably about a week later than the first time I'd been up there and, uh, It was wall-to-wall sunshine for the week. Everything (laughs) seemed to cost half as much as London. All the people in the job were brilliant. Like We went out for drinks. We went out for um, lunch and so forth. And, um, yeah, it it was really good. And we decided, yes, we're going to move up to Glasgow. And I can definitely say I've never seen a week of unbroken sunshine like that again in Glasgow. (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: was um julie west was on the was my guest last week was she was she there at the time
1: so not when i first started but later on um probably just about the time i left there um i think she might have come in as a, okay. as a student at that point in time but um yeah. and it was a really great place to work because uh we we'd moved up from glasgow we didn't know anybody at all we had no friends at all in in, in glasgow and um it was it was quite small at the time Hyman's, but um it was fantastic for, you know, the work, the, the work you did was really good. But, um, you know, every Friday night um, after work, everybody would go out. There was a really good kind of social sort of scene there. And people from all departments as well, investment admin, all of the partners and so forth. And, you know, I met a lot of good friends when I went, went there. My wife came along as well. She met lots of people. So for people who were turning up in a kind of city not knowing anyone, it was, it was a really good place to work because it was just so sociable and kind of met friends, um, you know, really, really sort of quite quickly. So
0: so did, did you qualify first and then have a look around or how did you get on with the exams?
1: Yeah, so I qualified whilst I was still at, still at Hyman's, probably about a year or so after I first got the job there. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I was at Hyman's for five five years or so, something, something along those lines. Um, mm. Yeah, and you know, carried on working in the public uh, public sector. Did a little bit of private sector work, and I suppose as, as soon as I'd got that little bit of experience, I you know, I knew in myself that I wanted to um, you know to work more in that sort of pub, uh, private sector role um, with different schemes and so forth. So, so yeah, my next move was to um, to Aon, which was just around around the corner um, in Glasgow, and. Again, it was one of those... I, I played five-a-side football um, and um, we played on a Wednesday um, with Hyman's and I played on a Thursday with a, a bunch of guys from Aon. And, oh, really? <laughs> um, and uh, so on the Thursday, you know, I could tell there was a lot of talk about, you know, we're kind of quite desperate for actors at the moment. They had a, um, a, a lot of work on and, um, yeah, they, was, they were struggling to fill some of their roles. So... Um, so, I mean, they—they, they, I, I said, oh, I could be looking to move, and I went in, and you know, got a job there. at on so.
0: Oh, fine. And, and did you did you keep playing for both teams then <laughs> after, after uh, you made the okay. move, or was it awkward?
1: <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't think there was any awkwardness about. It. I think I probably <laughs> just got less fit to be able to play <laughs> two games. So, I carried on with the uh, Thursday uh, game up until about up until about a year, eighteen months ago. Is it finally kind of collapsed as we kind of got into our late 40s and 50s <laughs> and <laughs> trying to get 10 fit men together was uh, quite difficult.
0: Yeah. Um, so how, how did you find it at Aon? Was it what you expected in terms of the benefits of, of moving to a private sector team? Uh,
1: it was good I mean if, if I'm completely honest about it I mean when I first moved there just because they were so understaffed for about the first year or so, it was very hectic in just trying to, you know, meet client obligations and so forth. Um, there wasn't really time to 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 do anything else. A couple of other people left while I was there as well, and um, yeah, I mean, it was the amount of work for the amount of people there was was quite difficult for that first year or so. Um, but then, you know, they managed to recruit more people, and it became a lot more stable um, and so forth. Uh, once once they got more people in at that level it kind of calmed down a bit um and it was good yeah i mean um i worked there for i can't remember that but seven or so years um i had a really good relationship with um shabaz who uh, run the um scottish office um, and uh, yeah it was a great place to work um, and i um and i found a bit of a niche as well because um around that time the um the kind of buy-in and buy-out market opened up it was about 2007-2008 so you was getting some new players in the market and at the same time credit spreads the amount of extra return on them on, um, on credit versus um versus gilts really kind of pushed out i think it was two and a half three percent at some point so that made uh, buyout pricing and buy-in pricing really quite attractive because insurers are pricing off of that off of that credit yield so um so myself and a couple of other people down in london sort of started off the um Aeon, it's called the bulk annuity group i think at the time and um yeah and i did a lot of transactions um uh, securing buy-ins and buyouts and it was something that i really enjoyed it was kind of um you know you're doing all the actuarial piece but there was a lot of um kind of negotiation around the price um you know um Bit of it's almost a bit of a poker hand at times in terms of kind of get the price down and so forth and it was it was really enjoyable i really really liked it yeah
0: what is it about pensions that you enjoy so much hi guys we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second just a quick reminder that when i'm not recording podcasts i specialize in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves and i'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options i work with people at all levels whether you have a couple of years experience through to senior positions My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show.
1: What I liked when I worked for um, companies themselves was... um, I suppose the opportunity to kind of do new new things or develop kind of in house um, a kind of service or practice or so forth. So, you know, if I go back to those bulk annuity days, you know, that market opened up. We saw, we started it from scratch, put the kind of procedures in place, how we were going to do the pricing, how we were going to do the reports, etc. cetera, built a model so that we could estimate pricing without having to go out to the insurers, so we could do that quickly. Um, so building up that from the beginning was something that I really really enjoyed, and then other things come along in um, in pensions, such as you know people started um, using LDI to match their liabilities and so forth, all of those types of things. So there were new uh, topics or areas that would come up, and you know it was good to be kind of part of that. And I enjoyed that kind of building, you know, an area up from from nothing to start off with to, you know, to kind of doing some deals and getting some income in the door and um, securing benefits for the, for the members as well, which was the, you know, which was the ultimate goal of any pension scheme. So,
0: I'm interested because of what you do today, when you were working at the various consultancies, did you have much of a connection with the people actually in the scheme, the scheme members?
1: Uh, well i suppose that's one of the issues about working in a, um, in a consultancy like that, is that you uh, well as, a, as an actuary or an investment consultant you're, you you don't you don't get that at all you don't get any you know you, you don't get members on the phone to you asking queries you don't get to speak to members in general you're speaking to the trustees you're giving the trust trustees advice i suppose if you work in the admin field then you're you know you're dealing with members all of the time um so they're much more kind of member facing whereas you're just really speaking to the either the company or the trustee whoever whoever you're giving the advice to um but and I, i i suppose with um the buyout and the buyout world you got a little bit closer to that because you were actually looking at um you know individual members and securing their benefits and so forth and sometimes some individual members could have really quite a large effect on that price, um, you know, and their particular circumstances. So you had a really high earner, for example, you know, if they were married or not married, <laughs> could have a really kind of large effect on on the price, just in terms of their, you know, their spouse's benefits would have to be in, insured and and so forth. And then there was other ones that you drilled down more into, um, you know, such as mortality underwriting, and you would send out letters to, you um, know, um, to, to the workforce and well to, to the pensioners and try to get a better view of what the overall health of those um, members were to help with the with help with the pricing and so forth so but I can't say that I ever had lots of experience um, in dealing with um, members but I, I suppose I would like to think that You could see that there was all, I mean, this was why you were doing the job to effectively try and secure those members benefits in full or, you know, help them understand their options better and so forth. And I I do think, I, I suppose, if you're working in that actuary or that investment arm in a consultancy, that may be something that you lose sight of in a way because people are effectively just numbers on a spreadsheet or numbers in a, you know, a program which are all grouped together to look at you know, the potential liabilities or the potential risks or, you know, what the investment strategy should be and, and and so forth. So, yeah, so I do think you lose sight of that. And I think one of the other things as well is you work in that consultancy, you're surrounded by other actuaries, investment consultants, um, you know, pe- people who are, who are clever and really understand pensions well. And I've been fortunate, I mean, my wife's... Um, doesn't work in the financial field. A lot of my friends don't work in the financial field. And you get a really good understanding, I think, of just how clueless, it would be the right word, even the most very well-educated people are around kind of pensions and so forth. And that's not their fault. That's just, I think, because, um, you know, things are so overly complex for people that they just turn around and say, you know I, I just don't understand this at all and i really can't be bothered to ch- try and understand all the different technicalities um or or what to do so that did in some way kind of spur me on to think well you know i think a lot of people need help but not that they need help they need it in a way which can be explained to them that they can understand um and i think when you're talking to other people in that pensions, situation in that pensions kind of office all the time, and you're talking to experts, it's really difficult to zone out and think. You know what? What do normal people understand? Um, you know, compared to all the people I'm surrounded with, and it took me a little, quite a while to adjust to that. Um, when I first built Guide, I made it way too complicated, um, and then by understanding how people interacted with it, what their issues were, what the blockages were. Um, You know, we managed to, I mean, I think when I first launched it and tested it on the public, we were getting like about 2% completion rates because people found it really hard. Now our completion rate is about 45 50%, you know, um, and we've really, really learned from those users what the best way to, um, you know, to actually provide that help and assistance is.
0: So, so let's talk about that journey. So, you you worked for Hyman's. You you were at Aon. Um, I can see on LinkedIn. You then went to to GT. Have you always had something inside you that sort of fancied doing your own thing? And when when did you start to think a bit seriously about what the idea might be? Was that was that after you moved to GT? Um, so, well, okay.
1: So I suppose my mum was um, was self employed. She ran her own business, and um, so that might be something to do with it. I've always kind of wanted to kind of have that kind of freedom and the challenge, I suppose, of running your own business. Um, and then when I look at my work, I mean, like I say before, I was I was doing the pensions review work, but I suddenly kind of thought, well, I could do this on my own, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and I went off for a couple of years and did that. And then um, at Aon, that I suppose that's almost a bit of a, it was a role where you were kind of developing something new to take out there. So it was almost like a little business inside a business in terms of that kind of buyout team. And then what attracted me to GT was, um, I mean, essentially, one I spoke to one of the partners and he said, we used to have an actuarial practice. It's kind of died by the wayside now. Not They still have an act, a large actuarial practice, but... This was more around kind of pension consulting. And they were doing a lot of covenant um, um, assessment and advice around that. And they said, uh, you know, we, we've had a, a pensions consultancy, but everybody's kind of left now and it's gone. We'd like to kind of um, revive it. And I don't know, I suppose there's not many actuaries who'd probably think okay I'm going to go and start somewhere I've got no clients um you know I've got no, nothing to go on but um nothing to start with um, there's no other actuaries there in the team or whatever but I just kind of I, I kind of like that and I went there I mean what's to lose really I mean he's starting from nothing um and it went quite well you know after a year or so we hired a um, another actuary um who, who I worked with I worked with a previously and we worked together and it was a you know it was a it was a few great years of um, really enjoyable work and what we were doing and you know it felt like your own business in some kind of respect we we you know we had our eyes open if we didn't bring in the money then um, you know and the income and get get new clients and work then you know essentially why would why would we be kind of um, you know kept on so Mm -hmm. it was it was kind of a challenge in that way but it was really good and it was really enjoyable.
0: When did you start thinking okay I really do want to do something myself? Uh, So
1: the 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 change to the pensioners freedoms had happened before I moved to GT so Mm -hmm. I first started building like the kind of background calculations which supported guide before I moved there and when I did move there one of my kind of stipulations was oh, I'm trying to build this in the background it's not really gone anywhere at the minute um but I do intend to keep doing that um you know I'm happy to take the role but as long as you're happy for me to be kind of doing that in 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 the background and you know hopefully it will develop over time so um so that kind of happened and at that point it was a good time because there was little more I could do I had to hand it over to my developer who i met at that time and he was kind of building things in the background but it was moving at a really slow pace which kind of kind of was fine I don't think the market was ready for for things like that yet and I you know and I had a full-time job um, um, which I enjoyed which was good Um, and I think I was I don't know what I was there for about six years or so but towards the end once you know it started to be built I could you know it became a a bit of a um, decision for me. Well, do I stay here doing this, or you know, do I take the risk and try and go off and do this on my own? Um, and I could see it building a bit of momentum. we first started to test it with users and so forth, and we could see the kind of positive feedback we were getting. I'd had a few, I'd, i had a, f- a few people approach me about um, you know potential investment and so forth. So. I went down to four days a week, first of all, and then I just thought, no, I've, you know, I've just got to go for this. Um, Let's, so I'd secured enough investment to um, basically survive for a while. Um, And I met um, Philip, who's my kind of business partner. i have known Stuart, my developer, for a long time. Um, And, yeah, we decided to take it forward. Um, Philip was a, I was much more of a technical person, still I'm much more of a technical person, Philip was much more kind of centred around sales, he'd done sales before other sort of technology firms, and it was just a good partnership, and I just thought, right, okay, let's, um, you know, let's kind of see what we can do, and kind of take it forward from this point, and then, yeah, that that was how we kind of moved into it, Um I just think, yeah, it, it, was, just a, it was just a new challenge, really, it was a kind of, you know. Um, we've 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 built something. It's a business. It's not got any revenue or so forth at the moment. Um, those few years ago, you know, can we take that and actually kind of turn it into a you know a proper business? Mm
0: -hmm. How did it feel when you walked out of GT's office for the last time and it really was this or nothing?
1: Uh, well, I suppose um, well, it was during lockdown, so it wasn't a case of it. Yeah, you had a kind of last video call or whatever, but um. If you kind of really want to do something, then you've got to take the chance. Uh, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You know, I'm still considering myself to be a pretty good actuary. I suppose I could always, you know, get a, a job back in the pensions actuarial world. Um, but I, so there was there was that. I, I realised that you were taking a risk, um, but you know, I, I like the fact that he's doing that. But two is. There's so much you don't know, so much you need to learn that you don't kind of... So I knew nothing about running a business. I knew nothing about, you know, tax breaks for investors or, you know, how to get the right people on board, um, you know, all the different sort of stuff that you needed to do, uh, a marketing strategy, for example, all of those type of things. And you just have to learn it. So you're so kind of busy learning all of that type of stuff that you don't really kind of think about, um, you know, Um, anything else and then at the same time whilst you're trying to do that you're trying to you know kind of improve the site and make it better and so forth but i mean i was absolutely clueless about how to run a business when i first started um you just you know you just kind of have to learn all the different elements um as you go along
0: yeah yeah Yeah. so so give us a feel for exactly what guide does so you you mentioned earlier you know even well-educated people might might have looked at pensions literature and just just turn away from it it's too complicated ignore it what 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 do you do for people like that
1: uh, well so essentially um what guide does so if we think about i suppose the journey more of um in terms of the business first of all we'd built a site which was a a, a journey for people to tell us what they wanted in retirement and tell us what they've got, and then we would effectively do all the sums to work out for people how to put everything together to get what they want, and hopefully not run out of money. Um, but when we first started, that, we had no idea whatsoever if there would be any demand um, for this. Um, it was unique in terms of there was nothing else out there. There was there was tools that IFAs used, um, which are really good, um, you know, but by design. You're only using those tools if you're going to an IFA for advice and the tools are so kind of complex that it needs an IFA to do all the input in the modeling and so forth. So so our first kind of question to ask was, well, is there any demand for this? And we could see quite quickly that there was real demand. It didn't cost us hardly anything in marketing to get a significant number of people coming to it each month. I mean, I think we hit 10,000 users a month, really, really quite quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um and then the next question was, well, you know, there's a demand for this, but it's completely useless if people can't use it on their own. They're not going to be sat there with an advisor, they're not going to be sat there with an expert. And that was probably the challenge for the first year in terms of, right, there's clearly a demand for this, but everybody's dropping out because it's way too hard for them to do. So you know, we had to kind of change the journey a lot to make it far simpler. So, you know, then in, if if you think about the the, the pensions freedoms, there's more and more people are coming to retirement with a defined contribution pension pot. And, you know, if they don't get advice, they've got to effectively take that pot down over a number of years to sustain them um, their income in retirement. And there are, prob- you know, there are plenty of tools out there which say, well, you've got a pot of £100,000. If you take Y amount from it and you get X return, then that pot will last you for Z years. But, That's just completely impractical for 99% of people. So, you know, virtually everybody's going to have a state pension. So, you need to factor that into the income. Lots and lots of people retiring now have got old defined benefit final salary schemes. You need to factor that in. People don't just retire. Lots of people don't just retire on one day and walk out. You know, they do a bit of part time work. Um, So, you've got to factor that income in. People don't just save into pensions. Lots of people have got ISAs and so forth or just bank account savings that they can use towards a retirement. That gets taxed differently from pensions, and you've got to factor that in. You know, Some people may have rents from property. Some people may downsize their home. All of these different factors, and essentially what we were saying was, well, just tell us what you want in terms of starting income and whether you want to take tax-free cash. Tell us the shape of the income you want because you know, lots of people – probably want their income to increase to maybe 75 and then after 75 people naturally spend less because they become less active and so forth so tell us what you want tell us everything you've got and we'll effectively piece it all together um, in a way which provides you with a sustainable plan should everything go as expected Um, but we all know that things won't go as expected so you know what happens if I live a bit longer I don't get that return the market crashes I need a bit of care you know typical kind of scenarios that people can relate to and then you know can I if I if I look at that you know I understand the risk of everything goes expected to work if I live three years longer at work if there's a market crash it won't work okay I'm willing to live with that risk or I can reduce my income I'm going to take a bit more or I can pay a little bit more money in or something we've adding in now is i could you know potentially use some equity in my home either through downsizing equity release or so forth but effectively it's not about pensions it's holistically your whole retirement income and how you're going to put that together um and then you know it's all well a good building a building a plan but you uh you know you kind of need to sort of track it over time and make sure it um you know it um it's still expected to work out so it's really easy for people, they build their plan, they come back come back six months after they built their initial plan. Markets have done whatever, but they can, you know, they can track it and see if it's still on course. So so we hope, you know, it kind of gives people a holding hand, both on the way up to retirement and at that point of actual retirement, but then kind of holds their hand all the way through retirement as well, to say, Okay, I'm seventy five now, but you know, is my does my plan have I still got nothing in my pots and my other income for my plan to still be expected to work, you know? given what my life expectancy is now, I'm 75.
0: Yeah. I imagine the answer is you get a, a wide variety, but who who's using the platform as in, when you look at the the, the people using it, are they quite close to retirement or, or are people starting to use it to plan well in advance?
1: Um, so, I mean, I suppose we only have a limited marketing budget and we target... To those people who we um, you know, who 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 we think are most likely to use it. So most of our target, or most of our audience, so we have different versions, but our main consumer site, um, most of that audience is over 50. Um, so they're over 50, and they're at that point of they're starting to think about the end game and you know when retirement may be. You've got some who are already in retirement, you've got some that are very close to retirement. We do have some younger people as well that use the main consumer site and those people, they probably have on average about 250K type size pension pot. So they've got enough of, probably more than enough of a pension pot to give them a, um, a sustainable income, um, but they're probably not in that kind of half a million plus bracket where, you know, they, they, they may well need advice around, you know, potential tax issues and, and that the kind of group of people who generally go and and get advice. I did think when I bought it, it would probably be for um it'd probably be used by people with less in the way of savings and it's been a bit of a surprise that they've kind of got those sort of levels. But that's that's the kind of main consumer side. But then we we license different versions to two different entities who may have completely different demographics. So we license a version to a master trust. They've got really quite small pots and are a lot younger, but we find Sometimes we tweak the assumptions in, in what we do to make it more kind of friendly for that demographic, but we find that the completion rates work really well in kind of any demographic that we that we look at. And one of our, I'll give a couple of examples, we've got a master trust, a care association, you know, and different types of employers who you may well expect to have less in the way of pension savings than, you know, typically what, what might come through our consumer side. But then by the same token, we license a version to. You know their employees are investment bankers, and they probably got you know more than what our typical kind of consumer sites. So there's there's all a different range, and I find that with guidance, guidance can work really well. But you need to kind of tailor that guidance to the particular demographic that you're looking at. So we've got a kind of spin-off version for younger people, and if you're 25 years old, you know you probably really don't want to look at what the breakdown is of, you know, how you're going to take your money when you're 65, you're probably concerned about one thing at that point, And that is, you know, what's a reasonable age that I might be expected to retire at? Um, you know, and we all underneath is all the background calculations. But, you know, what the user sees as the front end is, all right, okay, unless I pay any more contributions in, I can only reasonably you know, it looks like a feasible retirement. I'm not going to get till I'm about 72. Well, what can I do to lower that down to you know an age which is which is you know more reasonable? So guidance does work really well, but it needs to be kind of tailored to that specific audience. And we're doing a lot at the moment around um lower paid employees who've potentially got less um in pension pots and potentially the statistics say over 90% are just taking all that money as cash um, at retirement. So, yeah, that's a lot different to somebody coming through our main site who may have 200K in a pension pot and is looking at long-term plans, where they're gonna invest their money and so forth. For for somebody in that situation, they really need to understand three questions, well, two questions, really. One is, if I take this money, have I got enough elsewhere to give me a long-term sustainable income? Uh, at least at a kind of minimum level, and two, by taking this money now, is it causing me any harm inadvertently, which I didn't know about? So, so your you person who may take, say, a fifteen k pot all in one go, that might be perfectly reasonable if they're, um, you know, they're going to use that to, you know, I don't know, go on a really couple of really nice holidays or so forth, or pay down some debt, and they've got. Um, you know, an old DB scheme and a full state pension elsewhere um, or their partner or so forth has, you know, got quite good um, pension savings. Um, there's no real concern about that person. They've got a viable long-term income and they're not doing anything which is going to potentially damage them um, in, in taking that cash. But for somebody else, they may well take that 15 cut. They may take it while they're working. So they end up paying more taxed than what they necessarily would have done by taking that lump sum. And while they're working, they may be entitled to means-tested benefits, for example. Now, if you've got 15K in a pension pot, that's got nothing to do with your means-tested benefits and you're still eligible for it. If you take that 15K from a pension pot and put it into a savings pot, uh, put, you know, put it into your bank account, well, one, you paid that tax in kind of getting it out when you maybe didn't need to. But two, because you've got, more than a certain amount in your um, savings now, you can't get your means tested benefit. So, uh, you know, so people can do themselves harm just by not understanding, you know, some of the consequences of of, of what they do. So we're really trying to put together some, um, some help and propositions about that solely focused on that kind of market where we, you know, they're saying, I would like to take my cash all in one go. And we're saying, that that's fine but please just go through these steps to understand yourself what the you know what the effects of that may be and if there are some detrimental effects then you may want to consider you know other routes to um to go down
0: if there are people listening to this that are that are a bit younger and some of them are pensions actuaries and you'd hope they they know what they're doing but if someone's you know a life actuary gi actually don't know that much about pensions um If they just went to your website and typed in their current state, gave you their info, would it then help them to understand what they should be putting away to reach a certain goal?
1: Yeah, so effectively, when you get to our design page, you will see shortfalls in there. If you haven't got enough money, projected money at retirement, along with everything else you've got to provide an income over your life expectancy. So if you think about it, you know what can you really do to avoid those shortfalls. Without looking at bringing other assets in in some way or another, then you've got three choices. You, um, you either take less when you retire, you pay in more now in contributions, or you retire later. So we have kind of simple solve buttons that what we found is that um, people don't want to play around with various different variables. They want the answer. So, if I say I want £30,000 a year in retirement and it's unachievable and I've got these red bars, they want to press a button that then says, well, Have you reduced that £30,000 to £25,000 after tax? Then, you know, it looks like you've not got any shortfalls. Do you want to do that? And we found that people want that answer a lot more than I can play around with 10 different variables and find out. So, so yeah, you can, you can, or you can't be paying £300 a month in contributions, or you and your employer are in your pension pot. Uh, There's shortfalls. Well, if you change that to £500 or £400, if you're quite young, so you don't change that much. But if you change it to £400, you'd expect those shortfalls to go. Do you want to do that? So that that's what we try to do, is, is give people the answers. And, um, yeah, so if you're, if you're young, um, you know, contributions that you pay are going to have a large effect. If you're... Older, and you're a year away from retirement unless you're going to throw in some absolutely huge contributions it doesn't make that much difference it's more about reducing the income or potentially retiring a year or two later
0: yeah so do you i don't know how much you analyze the 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 data for sort of trends and stuff but do you see big shortfalls for most younger people does does the shortfall decrease as people as is in your users if you if your users are closer to retirement there's less of a shortfall but for the younger ones their expectations are higher than they should be, maybe. Uh well I suppose
1: like like on the last point, if you're older, then you know, if you look at if you look at the difference between taking less or paying more, the paying more will give you quite a large figure that you have to put in to get rid of the shortfall. So overwhelmingly people choose um solve, take less. Mm-hmm. Um if you're younger, um it may be much more you're you know, probably about half Half of the people who get to the design page are probably going to see some red bar shortfalls in there. It's how you choose to solve it. And if you're younger, you may well choose to pay a bit more in contributions because you've got all that time for those additional contributions to work through and and so forth. One of the key statistics, I've been quite vocal about it on LinkedIn recently, uh, is that 80% of our users are male and 20% of our users are female. And there's no... There's no reason from our point of view why that's the case we advertise to um to males and females in exactly the you know exactly the same way um and you know we would like to see more female users um on, on our site or you know if we can't get them directly from people who find us you know we've said we're more than happy to give away free versions of our site to female um so so where people have a larger female workforce and so forth you know to to give um to give those free versions away and by default then we get more kind of um female users and you see you know year after year you see the statistics on the um the female pension gap um, and we see that from our numbers so about 20% of our users are female and females have a markedly, diff, uh, markedly lower pension pot on average than than men. And there's lots of reasons behind that. We wrote um, about that ourselves in quiet room about 18 months ago about all the kind of challenges that women face in the workforce in building up a pension pot. I'm sorry for, but one of the key, one and, you know, those kind of challenges, there's, there's, there's nothing that we can do to, you know, to to change that, that's employers that need to, you know, focus on what those issues are. But what we can do is we can give people the the tools and the help to let them know, you know, how, how to plan for retirement better rather than trying to work it out for themselves. And not just, you know, a pension provider may be able to do that, but it would just be around the policies that, or, or the, the, um, Uh, the pension policy that you have with that particular provider. We're looking at the kind of whole holistic picture and, you know, for us to get more of our, to get our tools in front of more females and hopefully help with that engagement is something that we would, you know, we would really like to do. Um, And, you know, there's, 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 there's no cost to people um, in, in, in doing that. So, If we can offer something for free, which would help, then, um, you know, even if it helps a small percentage of people because they can say, okay, well, I now know what I need to save or, um, you know, it's become a lot more apparent to me how I can actually take my money down in retirement to provide a sustainable income, then, you know, then that's a benefit for everybody. Um, We learn more from our female users. The employer is doing more to support their staff and, you know, they, they get more help and assistance at no cost to them. So mm.
0: what do you see the next few years looking like for your business? How will it sort of change, evolve? Um
1: well, so I suppose the um if you if you think about when you take down money in retirement, there's probably three key risks, or we think there's three key risks. Well one is um the amount that you take each year. So a sustainable withdrawal rate, which is what's guides all been about? And you know, it's not the same rate in each year. The amount you can take depends on what else you're getting in that year as well. You might take more if you retire before state pension age. You might get more, or take down more in those early years, but it's still sustainable if you're taking less when your state pension kicks in. So, our first focus has been really around that sustainable withdrawal rate and building people plans and so forth. And we, you know, we think we've do- we've done that really well, and that is kind of fully in place. The next steps are around making that easier for people so you know if, if you're going to withdraw money from a pension pop provider each and every month yeah you could follow the plan that we we've built for you but wouldn't it be easier if you just handed that plan to the provider and just said till i tell you any different just pay me that plan you know and i'll review it once a year and so forth if you want an ad hoc withdrawal that's perfectly fine um, you know, you just approach the provider directly for that. But you've got a long-term sustainable plan to basically go by. So that's our next kind of part in terms of making it practically easier for people to put those plans in place. And then the the third part is around um investment. So if you've there's been a lot of press recently about um, you know, people being lifestyled into certain default strategies. Um, and then that strategy turns out to be really wrong for the individual. So people being moved into bonds, so they're 100% in bonds at retirement, the bond market collapses because interest rates go up and this person just wanted to take cash. So, you know, they're, they're taking that cash out at that particular point in time and they've seen a drastic fall in their, in their value or they wanted to go into long-term drawdown and there was no need to move them 100% into, in, into bonds. And the key question, the the key issue is again, coming back to defaults and tailoring and guidance, it's great to have default investment strategies, but it's really difficult for an investment manager to produce that if they don't know what the individual's planning to do. And one of the benefits of using guide and producing those cash flows and saying, I'm gonna take 25% of retirement or I might buy, use 25% of my, 30% of my pot to buy an annuity and then take the rest in drawdown, because you've got that plan, if you pass that plan to the investment provide, uh, investment manager in a product, the default investment strategy can be built around your plan because you've got an idea of what that person's going to do rather than sort of second guessing, you know, what, what they may do and, you know, what may happen. So that uh, focus for the next few months, uh, there's that There's that piece around helping people not make mistakes uh, at retirement. And then our other focus is around joining up our withdrawal strategies with that administration and payment strategy. So it's all kind of done automatically as a base payment and joining that up with the investment strategy as well. So the investment strategy is optimised for what you expect to do um, rather than just kind of second guessing, um, you know, or building some kind of generic plan, which might work for, you know, for everybody as a whole, because, you know, how people expect to take their money down um, or use their pension pots is just markedly different from person to person. Um, and um, yeah, you can give them a default plan, but it's got to be tailored to what they're expected to do.
0: Fantastic. And everything you've you've talked about, if you're using the, the version on the website is free, free at the point of access, anyone can go on and and use your service, and uh...
1: yeah, yeah. So our main consumer site's completely free for people. It's um, and we don't. It's completely free. We have some partners on there, but we don't take referral fees from most of those partners anymore. If they, you know, they 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 go on to use it. Our our business is around licensing our tools to providers, employers, schemes, and so forth to to you know to help with 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 their members. So our main consumer site it works really well for us because you know, it becomes a live test environment for actual consumers who go for it. We know we know there's demand for it. We know it's got really good completion rates, 40, 45% or so forth. We we get our trust pilot reviews. We know people really, really like it. We get lots of feedback from people of how we can improve it. So we we do all of that. So that works really, really well. And then You know, if people want to take customised versions of what we build um, for their own particular purposes and goals, um, then, you know, that's what we do. We license that out to providers, master trusts, um, employers, some financial advisors. Um, Yeah. So, but on the main site, it's all completely, completely free.
0: Brilliant. What do you think is going to happen as as more and more people are reaching retirement with a DC pot rather than a DB one? Is there going to be some kind of crisis because there's a huge gap that's not, not obvious yet or maybe is obvious but isn't talked about? Or what do you think will happen? So,
1: I mean, if we look at the really long term uh, and, and we look at the kind of cohort, or we look at the waves of people coming through. So if you look at people retiring at the moment, a lot of them will either have been members of a defined benefit scheme at some point in their career so they will have some defined benefit um or final salary benefits you know a f- final salary benefits plus a full state pension plus whatever they've got in their pots they're probably gonna you know going to be able to get through ret- not obviously not everybody but you know a large proportion of those are going to be able to get through retirement time and if they combine those in a in a sensible way um and a lot of those people are going to have um large amounts of home equity as well and whether you access that through downsizing your house or equity release or so forth you know lots of that generation will have a lot of equity in their home then you look at the generations kind of later than that and you can see you can see for most of them they're going to be 100% defined contribution pots in terms of their uh, pension arrangements and you know for for people maybe a bit I'm 50 you know for people who are maybe about 40 or so now they may well have been able to buy their own house so again and that would have risen in value be expected to rise in value over time Um. so you know the combination of those two may again kind of see them through into retirement and they're probably in a position now where they can start to make more contributions and they've got that 20 years or so up until retirement to do so where I find it really quite worrying is for the younger generation you're kind of below 40s where you know they've got to juggle uh, effectively two really difficult areas one is saving up for a house which you know they're not they haven't kind of done that before you know house, house prices house costs are astronomical in a lot of areas and saving a deposit and paying you know proving that you can pay a mortgage or whatever else is probably their first um their, their first call at the moment and then at the same time you've got people telling you well you've got to save for retirement and and so forth but it doesn't look like that should really be well to, in their mind it probably looks like well that's not the you know the, the the best use of my money at the moment so you know so they should definitely, pay what they need to pay to get the employer contributions coming in and never lose out on your employer contributions. but for any kind of excess saving, that is probably going to be funneled towards, um, you know towards housing or uh, so forth you know to, to effectively do that. So you can see, in the future, those people may not have a lot of home equity because prices are astronomical as they are. How much further can they really kind of grow in kind of future compared to wages and the economy and so forth? They may well not have saved too much in the way of pensions. And there may be quite a significant proportion that have never bought their own house. So they have to pay rent in retirement, which just pushes up their costs. So, you know, fundamentally, I think that a lot has got to change for that generation, not from them, but from policymakers to, you know, to help them out in a in a number of ways. And I don't know, and that could be, you know, could that be, you know, more support for them saving towards a home? Um, you know, could it be higher contributions that are needed from the employer to pay into a scheme? But overwhelmingly, they are going, that that sort of below 40 generation is going to need a lot of help to both, to buy their own home and to save adequately from retirement. And, uh, you know, sorry, to say even more bad news, but they're likely to, you know, to get the state pension pushed out for, you know, more years as well. So they won't even, you know, be expecting to get that until they're maybe 70 or so. So it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's it's difficult. And it really does need addressing, I think. But I suppose like a lot of governments, you know, focusing on those really long-term issues probably isn't the key priority. It's winning the next
0: election, so. And my final question is, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? Um,
1: I've got, well, I'd I'd love to be, I haven't been able to go skiing for the last couple of years. If I could manage to go on a skiing holiday, that would be nice. Um, I usually go and see my mum in Spain, um, I have to go and see my mum in Spain every few months and just work out there, which is one of the great things as well, about nice. working for yourself. Yeah. Um, but I usually spend the uh, summer holiday there. But this year we're um, we're going somewhere different to Albania, which um, would be exciting. So we're going to go to um, just to the uh, top of Corfu uh, and then get a boat across to Albania. So it'd be nice to see something like that, which I haven't seen before. And I might even get to go um, diving, which I haven't done for quite some time as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of in terms of like holidays and so forth that's what I look forward to but um in terms of and in terms of the business I've just got it's really difficult to know one day to the next what's likely to kind of you know kind of happen next but I hope you know in um in 12 months time um guide is being used in more and more places um and it's providing more and more you know assistance to people who kind of clearly need it um you know everybody that comes to our well that's everybody, but lots of people who come to our site seem to, um, you know, to find it useful. But they kind of have to find us in the first place. And if we can, you know, get it out more broadly to to more people, then that's obviously bonus for us, and um, you know, can can help more people in the uh, at the same time.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I would When you go on holiday, does work come with you? Now that you're a founder, or, or do you manage to shut off for a week or so?
1: Uh, no, I'm really really bad actually. When I go to my mum, mum's every um, uh, few months, I just work there normally as, you know, it's kind of just a, like, I mean, in, a... in the summer, I am meant to not have my laptop at all. But the last time I was there, I was getting some seriously told off uh, um, yeah, having my laptop <laughs> all, yeah. the, all of the time. <laughs>
0: Fine. well um thank thank you so much for for taking the time It's been really good to get to know you get to know also much more about guide and, and what you're offering it's it's something i'm i'm 39 and pensions are not good in the recruitment sector it's an afterthought it's more about drinks in bars and commission and stuff <laughs> they, they they do not think about your pension so it's something i need to think about a lot more myself so it's been really interesting thank you so much for your time and um i wish you all the best with the business
1: uh, I mean, no, thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me um, it's, been, uh, it's been really enjoyable so thanks very much
0: thanks for listening to this episode of Actuarial People please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review if you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com this podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company Turner Perkins and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again!